Mark chapter 10, page 715 in the Red Pew Bible. Peter Tree is going to read that for us. Jesus then left the place and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Are we going to pray first? And then we're going to look at God's word. Father, we thank you for uh, speaking to us through the scriptures. We thank you for the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus and how he spoke, speaks so clearly on this subject of marriage. Father, we pray that you would give us attentive minds and humble hearts, that we would listen, that we would learn, and that we would consider uh, our own situation and uh, our own thinking about marriage and relationships uh, in this world in which we live, where things are sometimes so messy. We pray also for the children in Sunday school, that uh, you would open their eyes and their hearts and their minds to your word this morning. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, just over a week ago, the veteran political reporter... Uh, um, Peter Harvey died um, after a very short battle with cancer. I think he was about 68 years of age and uh, and I was quite shocked. I thought he was still quite young. I thought he was probably still reporting but uh, uh, there was the news items to say that he had died from cancer. And in the midst of all of the stuff that makes it to our front pages, all of the scandal and the muck and the horror of the events uh, that have happened in the world over the last week or so, the stories about Peter Harvey's life made for, uh, in my view, uplifting and nourishing reading. Uh, It was reading about a life which was well lived. Uh, In one of his last writings, he spoke of his faith in God and in Jesus Christ and uh, told of how his faith in Jesus had strengthened him throughout his life and particularly so in the last days as he faced uh, his eternal future. This is how yesterday's Daily Telegraph put it and I quote, For many Australians it's his voice they'll remember, the deep reassuring baritone that was broadcast into our lounge rooms for more than 35 years. But there was so much more to Peter Harvey. 
there was the charismatic young reporter who spotted a British English woman at a journalist club, married her after 12 months, and loved her until his death, 45 years later. There was the deeply Christian man who never wore his faith on his sleeve, but lived by it and took strength from it at the end. Now, did you make the connection there? The connection, the two points that they made is a deeply committed Christian man who loved his wife until his death. It's an interesting connection, isn't it? Uh, of course, you don't have to be a Christian to love your spouse until you're parted by death. But uh, in those two aspects of his life, uh, it, it really actually does reflect a, a clearly Christian view of what marriage is supposed to be about. We live in a complex world where relationships and marriages are not all that we would like them to be. But uh, the difficulties that we experience are not made any easier by the changing attitudes towards relationships and indeed marriage in our society. Uh, over the past, um, I'm guessing, 50 years, uh, there has been a gradual erosion of the concept of marriage. And it's an erosion which has led to a certain degree of confusion. Confusion because, on the one hand, society seems to be saying that marriage is no longer considered to be very important. That uh, you don't need to be married in order to enjoy a relationship. Uh, you don't need to be married in order to um, raise a family. And indeed, you don't have to be committed to this idea which is enshrined in marriage that marriage is to one person uh, for life. So, on the one hand, society is saying that marriage is a little bit old hat, that it's no longer important. But on the other hand, society is now saying that marriage is extremely important. Uh, in fact, we're being told that it's so important that marriage is a basic human right and that therefore marriage needs to be available to all sorts of people that we need to be thinking about redefining the definition of marriage and changing the Marriage Act so that marriage is not uh, exclusively for uh, heterosexual couples but also for same-sex relationships. Now, I wonder how you feel. Uh, do you sometimes feel a little bit frustrated by the confusion uh, in, within our society? Uh, do you sometimes feel frustrated by the uh, behaviour and the messiness of relationships in our world? Well, if you do, let me just say this. It's easy to say, well, it's this generation alone, but there's actually nothing new under the sun. Um, let me fill you in on a first century scandal, which uh, if they'd had newspapers back in... Uh, in, in Galilee would have hit the, uh, uh, the, the, the headlines during the ministry of Jesus and uh, would have certainly uh, been broadcast all over the place on the internet. 
And it's a scandal which gives us a bit of background to our passage today. If you're having a look at the passage, by the way, uh, in verses 1 and 2, it it tells us that uh, Jesus had left the place where he was conducting his ministry and that he went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And we're told that crowds of people came to him and, as was his custom, he taught them when some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, that's the context. And in the Bible, geography and politics are sometimes uh, helpful to know about. Uh, At the time of Jesus, Palestine was certainly was ruled by Rome. It was part of the Roman Empire. But they had a number of local rulers who were puppets of Rome who had their little geographical area that uh, they ruled. Uh, And so in the south, the the governor of Judea was Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Uh, A bit further to the north in Galilee uh, was one of the sons of King Herod the Great. You remember King Herod the Great? He was the king who ruled at the time of Jesus' birth. But uh, now, the middle area of uh, Galilee is uh, ruled by his son, whose name was Herod Antipas. And further up north, that area was ruled by Herod Antipas's half-brother, whose name was Herod Philip. So three rulers, Pilate in the south, and Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, further up north. Now, here's the scandal. Herod Philip, the guy who ruled up north, was married to Herodias. There's a lot of Herods in this story. So Herod Philip up north is married to a lady called Herodias, but Herodias left him. And she went down south and she married his half-brother, Herod Antipas. Now, That's adultery. Uh, And friends, even if that sort of thing happened today, it would be a scandal, wouldn't it? Imagine if the, I don't know what's the equivalent, you know, the wife of the Queensland Premier comes down and married. No, we won't go into that. You know, it would be splashed everywhere across the newspapers and it would go viral on the internet. It would be a scandal. But in the first first century, what do you think would happen to anybody who condemned that kind of adultery. We don't have to guess, do we? Because in, John, in Mark chapter 6, a few chapters back, uh, we learnt that John the Baptist called it for what it was. Uh, he named and shamed and said, this is adultery. And that really, for his troubles, Herodias, what did she do? She had his head lopped off and served on a dinner platter. Right? That's what happens. If you call adultery adultery when Herodias is involved, you lose your head. Now, in verse 1, what's happened is that Je- Jesus has travelled from the area that was ruled by Herod Philip and he's now down in Judea, which is now much closer to the territory which is ruled by Herod Antipas and his delightful wife Herodias, And so, therefore, this is now more dangerous territory. 
In fact, there was a political group at the time who were called the Herodians. Uh, these were a political party that were allied to the family of Herod. And uh, back in chapter 3, verse 6, we were told that the Herodians had, had uh, conspired with the Pharisees to hatch a plot to have Jesus killed. So the religion and the politics are joining together to conspire against Jesus. And so when these Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him this question about adultery, this is not just an academic question that they're asking. They're not asking this question because they're just curious or they don't know. Now, what, what is their motivation for asking the question? What does it say in, in verse 2? They, what were they doing? They were, thank you, Jeanette, they were testing him. Now, um, uh, that word that's translated as testing can also be translated uh, as tempting. It's the same word in, in the Greek. And so what seems that they're doing here is that they're actually trying to publicly draw Jesus... Uh, into saying, making statements about adultery which potentially could get into a conversation which uh, could get him into trouble with Herodias and therefore that might fast-track Jesus' execution. In other words, uh, this really could have been a trap. A trap which Jesus avoids. How does he avoid the trap? Jesus has got this unnerving habit of... I don't know if I'd want to be around at the time and ask Jesus a question because he asks Jesus a question and how does he answer? He asks you a question. <laughs> and that's what he does here. In fact, what he does is he... Uh, he, 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 he in verse 3, he shifts the issue away from himself and what he thinks and gets them to talk about what Moses said. Because remember, these guys claim to be the experts in the Mosaic law, and Moses is their hero. And so in verses, verse 3, he says to them, well, what did Moses command you about this? And they said, well, Moses, well, he permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. Really? It's as easy as that, is it? According to Moses. You, you want to divorce your wife? Just write her out a certificate of, war, of divorce and send her on, on, on her way. Is that what Moses said? Do you think that was what Moses was on about? Well, let's have a look at what Moses said. There, there is one passage where Moses uh, speaks about uh, divorce, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'll see if you, whoever gets the, that page up first, call out the number for the rest of us. There you go, I've got it first. Number, page number 142. <clears throat> and uh, in Deuteronomy 24, in the first four verses, I think uh, <clears throat> what the Pharisees here are referring to, <clears throat> and I'll just read a couple of those verses. Everyone got that? Okay. 
the rustle of papers has stopped. I'll assume everyone's got it. So verse 1, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorces, is not allowed to marry her again once she's been defiled. Right? And it goes on to uh, spell that out a little bit more. Now, the first thing here is, is Moses actually somehow encouraging divorce? Well, no, he's not. Uh, this is... Uh, Divorce was already happening and uh, Moses is acknowledging that, that divorce is happening. There are two critical issues in this passage. The two issues are these. Firstly, the certificate of divorce. Now, what the uh, people who know more about this than I do say is that um, this certificate of divorce was actually uh, to protect the woman uh, because uh, uh, what it does it, it, is it affirms her release from the marriage. Because prior to this, a man might divorce his wife, send her off, and she gets into other life situations, and then he says, no, no, I didn't divorce her, and it creates great problems for, for the woman. This actually protects the status of the woman in that situation, so that her first husband can't claim her back as if he never divorced her. The second issue is this, and it is the grounds of divorce. At the time of Jesus, and indeed in the century before Jesus as well, there was a hot debate about what are the acceptable grounds for divorce. Um, the something indecent, which Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 24. Did you see that? If, you know, if the man finds something indecent in his wife and he writes her a certificate of divorce, sends her away. Now, some of the religious teachers said that uh, the something indecent was, was only ever something very serious, uh, like, for example, adultery. And you see that a little bit in Joseph. You know when Joseph um, found out that Mary was pregnant and... Uh, because they were engagement was tantamount to marriage in those days, uh, what did Moses assume about Mary when he discovered that she was pregnant? He assumed that she had committed adultery and he resolved in his mind that he would divorce her quietly because the, um, the law allowed for divorce in those conditions. And Moses would have uh, sorry, Joseph would have written her a certificate of divorce to say this is, this is final, this is the status. Um, but um, there were, so that's one view. But there were others who said that the something indecent could be just about anything. Uh, they had a very relaxed view, and this is a, a, a rabbinical uh, position that was actually held and was taught. Uh, it was even taught that a man could divorce his wife if she burnt the evening meal. 
just really trivial stuff like that, that the something indecent could be anything. And so that's the debate uh, that's going on amongst the religious leaders uh, and also in the political context of what Herodias had done. But in verse 5, Jesus cuts through all of this debate. He, he doesn't get involved in it. And he simply says that the only reason that Moses even allowed for divorce was because of the hardness of your hearts. That, the, uh, the, that, that this was a concession to human sinfulness. And that's what's going on here. Friends, uh, we know that this is true, that uh, because of the fallenness of human nature, that relationships and certainly marriage relationships are sometimes very complex and sometimes very difficult. And the Bible does allow for divorce under certain circumstances, um, such as adultery in Matthew chapter 19 or uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when a non-Christian spouse wants to leave the Christian spouse. The Christian spouse is, is not bound uh, to, to the covenant of marriage. And sadly, there are circumstances where divorce or separation, sometimes separation with a view to reconciliation, uh, will be necessary for the safety and for the well-being of the person involved, um, particularly where there are children uh, and their lives at stake. But that's not the first thing that couples should do when marriage gets tough. And we see this in verses 6 through to 9, where Jesus answers his own question. Uh, because when Jesus asked the, the Pharisees, what did Moses say? The Pharisees go straight for the one few verses which uh, seem to give some sort of technical legality for divorce. But what Jesus does here, if he, he says, if we want to understand issues about divorce, then what is it we need to understand before that? We need to go back further, don't we, into Moses? We need to go back to Genesis chapter 2 because if we want to understand divorce, we've got to firstly understand marriage. That's the key, to understand God's plan for marriage. And so Jesus uh, talks about that in verses 6 through to 9, uh, where he says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, there are four principles of marriage that are embedded in those verses, which Jesus has drawn from Genesis chapter 2. Firstly, marriage is between a male and a female. Uh, it's man and woman, um, both created equally uh, in the sight of God, uh, equal but different, and complementary to one another. And so 
what this is actually telling us in the context which we live in is that the marriage between a man and a man or between a woman and a woman is actually outside of God's plan in creation. Uh, that's, a, that's a big topic. That's a huge topic, which unfortunately I can't deal with today, uh, but it's incredibly important for us as Christians uh, in the shifting sands of uh, views on marriage in which we live in today. And I will add that I think that it does necessitate that Christians seek to have an understanding of and some compassion for people who have same-sex attractions, but without compromising what we believe that the, what the Bible is actually saying. Big topic uh, for another day. The second principle is that marriage means that a man leaves his parents and cleaves to his wife. Um, before marriage, our priority relationship is to our parents, and after marriage, our priority relationship is to each other. Uh, this is actually a very important principle of marriage. I've come across circumstances where uh, couples haven't quite got that right, and where, you know, for example, a husband has, you know, in a sense, invited his mother into the marriage, and uh, you know, has prioritised her above his wife, and it doesn't work that way because marriage is about a, a, a new union which is being established. And thirdly, the two will become one flesh. When I'm preparing couples for marriage, we go through these passages, and uh, when we get to that one, I say to couples, so what do you think that means, that the two will become one flesh? It's just interesting just to sit back and, and watch what, you know, they kind of say, oh, you know, it's because they know they're talking to a minister and they say, well, you know, it it means that we should be, you know, committed to one another or that we should, we should really, really love one another. And I sit and listen to that for a while and then I say, okay, folks, you know, what do you really think it's saying? Uh, and they say, um, talking about sex? Bingo. <laughs> Yes, absolutely, because uh, sex, or shall we call it um, marital intimacy, perhaps, if we want to be more polite, um, it, it's not, it, it is, the, the, the purpose of it uh, is absolutely to procreate, to produce children, but it's also to enjoy. Uh, sex is a gift from God, uh, to be uh, expressed in the right context of a loving, committed relationship, which we call marriage. But it's there for our enjoyment. And at the deepest level of who we are as persons, uh, sex means that we make ourselves, we expose ourselves, we make ourselves vulnerable. Uh, it involves uh, incredible trust and is an, it is, a, uh, is an expression of the, the true oneness uh, that we have become uh, in marriage. And that's why um, sex outside of marriage, uh, in its various forms, uh, just uh, messes up our hearts and messes up people's lives. And so fourthly, 
Jesus says, bearing all of that in mind, that marriage is a gift from God, it's been instituted by God, couples are brought together by God, and therefore what God has joined, let no man separate. Now join the dots. What's he saying there? Well, you see, Herodias has done exactly that, hasn't she? Uh, That's precisely what she has done. But Jesus is not giving the Pharisees the satisfaction of explicitly saying that publicly in the context of a crowd. Uh, He's leaving them to join the dots. And then what happens is that uh, Jesus and his disciples retreat into a house where there's some privacy involved in their conversation. And we see this in verse 10, where it says, When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Now, what does he mean by this? Let's say a married man wants to be with another woman that he's not married to. But he also wants to be religious. He wants to be righteous. Uh, He doesn't want to be called an adulterer. So what does he do? Well, he divorces the woman he's married to in order that he can then go and marry the new woman. So technically he can say, well, I've, I've not committed adultery. <laughs> I mean, she's my wife. And Jesus would say, well, you may call her your new wife, but in effect she's actually your mistress, isn't she? <laughs> uh, Jesus says that when that happens, that's adultery. And they say that the Pharisees were actually encouraging people to do that and it became serial adultery. Uh, you just move on to the next, next woman by divorcing the woman that you're married to. And um, then, then what happens here is verse 12. Because in verse 12, Jesus concludes by saying, and if she, that is if a wife, divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, if Jesus had said that outside of the house amongst the crowd, uh, no, nobody would have missed what he was saying. It would not be hard at all to join the dots and realise that Jesus was charging Herodias with adultery and that Jesus could potentially be executed as John the Baptist was. Friends, the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus with a trick question about divorce. But Jesus has responded with teaching about the essence of godly marriage. A few years ago, Cassie and I celebrated one of our wedding anniversaries, and I can't remember which one it was. Not sure. I told you, haven't I, that the, there's one sure way of making sure that you never forget your wedding anniversary, and what is it? You forget it just once. <laughs> You'll never forget it again. So what it, we were married in 1989 and a few years ago we were celebrating, I think, our 20th or whatever. And uh, 
so we took Cassie down to Sydney. We stayed in a nice plush hotel, went out to some restaurants, and we went to church on Sunday where my old minister was the uh, minister there and uh, told him we were celebrating our wedding anniversary. And he said, congratulations. He said, uh, I never congratulate people when they celebrate their birthdays because what have you got to do in order to achieve a birthday? You've only got to breathe a bit longer, don't you? <laughs> you just got to stay breathing. Uh, and sometimes that can be hard, but anyway. But marriage, a wedding, a wedding anniversary, that's, that's worth congratulating you for because that's, that requires a bit of effort. That requires some, some work. That takes commitment to one another. And that's true because commitment is the essence of Christian marriage. Uh, in the Bible, there are different kinds of love. There's, um, there's romantic love, and we read a lot about that in Song of Solomon, don't we? Uh, there is God's special gift of physical, intimate love, um, sex. But the most important is sacrificial love. It's that uh, love which puts the other person ahead of your own interests. It's the, that love that says that I value you more than I value myself. It's that uh, love which is uh, demonstrated by a, a commitment from the start and a commitment which is lived out every new day of marriage. And it's a commitment which is, which is embodied in the traditional uh, Christian wedding vows where one says to the other that uh, I will be committed to you to the exclusion of all others uh, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until we're, like Peter Harvey and his wife, parted by death. That's the commitment I'm making to you. It's saying, I want to grow old with you. <laughs> and with no other. And that's Christian marriage. And yet, <clears throat> because of the fallenness of human nature, we do know that sometimes, sadly, that will not work out, uh, even for Christian couples. And I know that that has been a, a struggle for some of us uh, within our church. But as Christians, our starting point and our commitment and our desire is for a lifelong union. Uh, in our day, society is losing that anchor which marriage provides. In Jesus' day, they just looked for loopholes to get out of marriage. But God wants us to be committed to our marriages to be committed to one another because of the very thing which we're going to celebrate in a few moments and that is God's commitment to us in the person and the work of Jesus. Uh, for as Paul says to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 that you are to love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her by dying on a cross. That's the kind of love that'll see couples make it to the end. Now let's pray about that, shall we?
Father, we do thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you that your word is clear as to what your plan and your purpose for marriage is. We pray for ourselves that uh, in the uh, quagmire that our society finds itself in because it has rejected your word, that uh, we would stand firm, uh, that we would not be moved, that we would be people who are committed uh, in our relationships for uh, better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And Father, we thank you for the great example of Jesus who uh, loved us so much that he gave up his life on a cross. And we pray that uh, his model of love would be our model. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.